Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for February 7, 2022. Here's today's rundown. Is it the two midnight rule or the three midnight rule? Was the patient admitted as an inpatient or placed in observation? These and many more questions are being asked daily of physician advisors. Dr. Elizabeth Quinn will report on the upcoming National Physician Advisory Conference hosted by the American College of Physician Advisors. Also today, third-party Medicare contractors appear to be following their own rules, not the regulations from CMS. We'll learn about the rampant disregard for regulations during our nationwide audit dragnet. We'll also hear from legislative analyst Matthew Albright, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson reports on the social determinants of health. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, we have good news for seniors. Come this spring, Medicare will cover the cost of at-home COVID-19 tests. This one, a government loophole, kept many seniors from accessing a free health insurance benefit that was available to those who had private health coverage. And finally, news for sports fans. If you're planning to attend the Super Bowl next Sunday in Los Angeles, you'll be required to have a face covering at the game. You'll also need to show proof that you've been vaccinated or recently tested negative for the coronavirus. We have much news to report. We begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. You know, after a couple weeks of frenzy, things have slowed down a bit. But there's always something to talk about. And occasionally, it's fun just to grab some popcorn and watch the show. Now, today's theme is retaliation. I don't think anyone is surprised there's a lot of tension between providers and payers. Payers collect premiums and want to do everything possible to retain as much of that money as possible. And providers, they want to be able to provide whatever care they want and to be paid for it at whatever rates they determine. And clearly, the healthcare system has demonstrated that both of these things cannot coexist. As we've discussed here, the No Surprises Act was a result of this disagreement with doctors going out of network and charging high prices, leaving patients with large bills. Unfortunately, the law as it's written is terribly skewed in favor of insurance companies, and as we've heard here, protests are ongoing. COVID-19 has also brought out the worst. For many months after the release of the vaccine, United Healthcare was underpaying providers for administering that shot. It wasn't a small error, it was over 1.6 million claims. And if anyone thinks that was simply an oversight, I'd think again. And the headlines were not very kind to United Healthcare. And now, the American Health Insurance Plans, the advocacy organization for payers, of course, has retaliated and publicly accused providers of price gouging, charging higher than appropriate rates for COVID-19 tests. And then, last week, a very interesting report was released, entitled HCA, Higher Healthcare Costs for America. This was a 58-page report published by the Service Employees International Union. The SEIU is the labor union that represents many types of hospital workers. In this report, which includes 184 references, SEIU accuses the for-profit healthcare system, HCA, of admitting patients when admission was not indicated. Now, I would not go read this whole report. They totally mess up the whole observation versus inpatient admission issue, and they actually refer to a 2006 reference about payments for admission, 
But their contention is that HCA as a policy tells their ED docs to hospitalize more patients, and as a result, they are committing fraud. Now, does SEIU have a case here? Well, I have no idea. But what intrigues me is why this union so vigorously went against HCA. Many unions have investment accounts, so maybe it is money, and they're playing the activist investor that wants changes in the company. Maybe their members get hospitalized more, so they're, this is altruism, and they're trying to keep their members' out-of-pocket costs down. But the real reason seems to be simply retaliation. Early in the pandemic, SEIU called out HCA for furloughing workers while paying their CEO $27 million. And then in July last year, workers at an HCA hospital in Missouri actually voted the union out of the hospital. You mess with me, and I'll mess with you. Maybe it's just the American way. Too bad we all can't just get along. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of trying to save money by skipping the step of asking a lawyer before you choose to make a refund. So I was talking with a client in the desert southwest about a problem recently. And as part of it, I just happened to mention how people often mistakenly believe that signatures are required at times when they're not. The client noted that my remark was timely because they were just about to refund money for services by two professionals who had not signed their charts. In one case, the professional had left the practice, and in the other, unfortunate case, the professional had died. The organization wasn't planning on checking with legal counsel because it seemed unnecessarily expensive, and they assumed a refund was required. But when I mentioned it, we had a short conversation. It was fortuitous. While it's true that our conversation will cost them a couple of hundred dollars, it was well worth it. They avoided thousands of dollars in refunds. If spending 200 bucks save you thousands, even 10% of the time you do it, the expense is well worth it. So why did I tell them a refund wasn't necessary? Let me begin my analysis by saying that nearly every rack and Mac assumes that there's a signature requirement and fighting with them about it is a pain so I strongly recommend having all charts, all charts signed, or all charts chined, I guess, too. So this is the quintessential situation where it's easier to accede than fight. But that said, it's also rare that there's going to be a situation where I would decline to bill or would refund because of a missing signature. Now, as part of the fee schedule a couple years ago, CMS inserted regulatory language in 42 CFR 410.20E, that's E as in Edward, uh, that they thought loosened the signature requirement. Unfortunately, I believe they were wrong because prior to that provision, there was almost no signature requirement that was a condition of payment. Now, I should clarify that there are conditions of participations for hospitals and ASCs and the like that often require charts be signed. But as we've discussed many times, conditions of participation aren't conditions of payment. And so a missing signature may get you cited by Medicare. It doesn't require the physician or supplier to refund the money. So let's examine that new provision. It says, medical record documentation. The physician may review and verify, parens, sign, slash, date, close parens, rather than redocument notes in a patient's medical record made by physicians, residents, 
nurses, medical physician assistant, and advanced nurse practice students, or other members of the medical team, including as applicable, notes documenting the physician's presence and participation in the service. That indicates that a professional can adopt another professional's note by co-signing it. The new rule does allow someone to argue that physicians are supposed to sign documentation recorded by other professionals, though I do want to emphasize the provision says a physician may review and verify rather than must review and verify. But whether or not the rule requires a physician to sign documentation by others, it most certainly uh, is not an explicit signature requirement for the physician's own note. It only applies in situations where the physician is verifying someone else's documentation. Here, the professional recorded their own documentation. The notation, I'm sorry, the notion that a signature is required to verify a note seems quite silly to me and is certainly not required by any other regulatory provision. I want to close by covering a related topic. On Friday, Linda, a listener from Texas, emailed me to report that her MAC, WPSGHA, recently told them that it would never be appropriate for someone to document on behalf of a physician. Now, I wasn't on the call, so I'm trusting that Linda is accurately reporting this conversation, but I have to say my own experience suggests that she is. I hope not, because good grief, that would be so blatantly long. Uh, wrong, even. So I've already read 41020E that explicitly permits a physician to adopt another professional's documentation. Linda astutely quoted that back to the MAC. But even without that, have they never heard of a transcriptionist? There is nothing that says only a physician can document in a medical record, and such a requirement would be a name. So thanks to Linda for challenging the MAC and for taking the time to share this with me and thereby with you. Now, a plea to CMS. In the last week, I've done two stories about government contractors blatantly misapplying the law. I hope that CMS will step in and take co corrective action. It isn't fair to hold the healthcare industry to a higher standard than it holds contractors. And right now, it's apparent that contractors have significant problems. So returning to my opening point, when you plan to refund, checking with a creative health lawyer is money well spent. You don't need to refund when a professional has failed to sign their own note. This is a situation where you want to disregard the advice of Billy Joel, who tells you, Don't wait for answers, just take your chances, don't ask me why. You're certainly welcome to do it, but it might unnecessarily cost you. I'd flip it, wait for answers, don't take your chances, and most certainly, ask me why. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Don't ask me why. Coming up later on Monitor Money, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, and our special guest, Dr. Elizabeth Quinn. It's Monday, it's February the 7th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference in Austin, Texas is April 11th through the 13th at the Hyatt Regency. The event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management and clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, C-suite leaders, and others with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is truly one of a kind. 
and it has become the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Scheduled speakers include outstanding thought leaders from the profession, as well as nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. It's been too long since you've all been together. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to register. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany also has a Monitor Money listener serving. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck. In the 80s and 90s, we saw the rise of managed care, which fueled the healthcare race for market share. Hospitals were gobbled up into major networks to create muscle with payers and leverage better contracts and increase customer base. In the mid to late 2000s, the triple aim became a major factor in the value equation for the Affordable Care Act and is still the guide for the Institute for Health Improvement. The three prongs, improving patient experience, improving the health of our population, and reducing the cost of health care are outlined as the key methods to achieve value-based care. In 2014, we saw a new prong, coined the quadruple aim. The fourth component states that without acknowledging for physician and healthcare employee satisfaction, the triple aim is unachievable. This point still holds true today as we see how burnout and the occupational trauma of our healthcare workforce can easily lead to medical errors and not the best customer experience. It's hard to give when you have nothing in the tank. The significance of this aim was not the need for another component, but that the marketplace must consider its providers when determining the value of healthcare provided. Today, the new ask is for the quintuple aim. <clears throat> the quintuple aim excelled out of the last two years as we must no longer ignore health disparities. The argument is once again that without the requirement for health equity, we will not achieve our value proposition of right care, right place, at the right cost. The quintuple aim requires a dedicated practice to evaluate marginalized populations in your community when considering how health care is delivered. This includes consideration of race, rural communities, age, individuals with disability, and poverty, to name a few. The latest land report highlighted how great payers and health systems are at tracking data regarding social determinants of health and health disparities, but organizations and payers have not really determined clear guidelines or recommendations of how to act on the data that has been obtained. In my last reader poll, I asked listeners about the willingness to get involved to address health disparities in your community, and the answer was in line with the national trend. I don't know where to begin. Some healthcare organizations and payers have started adding positions to focus attention on health disparities by adding VPs of health equity and managers of social determinants. The difficulty with this question is the answer is complex, specific to your community, and multifaceted. But until we examine our communities for structural racism, variances in access to healthcare, housing, food, medications, education, and employment, we will still struggle to achieve the real value of healthcare which is to improve our patients' health outcomes. The IHI is still holding to the triple aim and states that the additional concepts of employee burnout and health equity are important, but they are contributors to the success of the original North Star. So my question for today's listeners is to ask, which aim do you think your healthcare organization is following? Neither, we're still very managed care. The triple aim, which is that patient experience population health and cost of health care, 
the quadruple aim, which means you're adding employee satisfaction, the quintuple aim, adding health equity or does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And as Tiffany said, we're going to have the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zellis, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zellis delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, today we'll talk about the rebirth of one sweeping health policy, the cancer moonshot, the presumed death of another, single-payer health care, and a hint of things to come of a third-party initiative, price transparency. In our first story, President Biden has revived his Cancer Moonshot Initiative, first launched when Biden was vice president in 2016. The new supercharged Moonshot's goal is to reduce cancer deaths by 50% in the next 25 years. Biden says that one of the reasons he ran for president was to improve cancer outcomes. The Revive Cancer Moonshot will focus on population-level efforts to develop better ways to screen for cancer, especially targeting specific communities. For example, people of color have higher death rates for many cancer types. One way to do this, says the National Cancer Institute, would be to develop a test that would provide early detection of multiple cancers at once. The head of the National Cancer Institute said this week that we are in the golden age of cancer research with certain recent advances making the goal of that moonshot possible. Our second story is about the apparent demise of state-level single-payer health care, at least for this year. The idea of single-payer health care was a major theme in the 2020 presidential campaigns and seemed to get an extra boost during the pandemic when fissures in our current health system became apparent. Indeed, legislation for single-payer has been introduced this year in Kansas, Maryland, New York, and California. The most likely chance for success of the policy was in California, where Democrats have a supermajority in the legislature. Single-payer has been introduced in California before, but never with a plan on how to pay for it. This year, supporters presented a new bill, complete with proposed taxes to support it. But while advocates found the money to pay for the legislation, they could not find the votes to pass it. Even Governor Gavin Newsom, who ran his campaign on single-payer, would not support the bill given its cost. So last week, California's single-payer legislation was killed before it was even put up for a vote. And in our final story, as a harbinger of what we may see from sweeping price transparency requirements, Mass General Brigham Hospital, that's the dominant tax-exempt academic hospital in Massachusetts, must submit a plan to the state government to lower patient costs. The hospital could be fined half a million dollars if it doesn't address its current prices, which according to a new report, are the highest in the state. Chuck, as consumers are provided more and more transparency into hospital prices, we can expect other state governments to follow Massachusetts' example, going after specific hospitals for their pricing. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. 
Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Jack. So the question is, which aim do you think your healthcare organization is following? About 9% said neither. We're very still managed care. 21% said they are following the triple aim still. About 24 is the quadruple aim. And I have to say, I love to see this, that the majority are following the quintuple aim, adding some version of health equity into the equation. And about 20% was does not apply. So just great to see we're moving in the right direction and taking that consideration. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, everybody, very much for your survey. Coming up next, is it the two midnight rule? or the three midnight rule, inpatient or observation. We're going to have a report on the role of physician Pfizer's when we return. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. If your organization has been audited by a Medicare Advantage organization, you're now faced with a serious question. Should you challenge the audit? If so, do you even have the right defense? Under pressure from CMS, Medicare Advantage organizations have become more aggressive in their provider audits. They're looking for program non-compliance, potentially even fraud and abuse. But the fact is many audit findings are simply wrong, so you must be prepared to fight back. Rack Monitor presents a crucially important webcast on Medicare Advantage audits featuring healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. This webcast is Tuesday, February 22nd. Register now to attend Medicare Advantage Audits, Mounting an Effective Defense. Again, the webcast is Medicare Advantage Audits, Mounting an Effective Defense. Register now to learn how to win and hold on to payments that are rightfully yours. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, physician advisors are frequently asked to help their facilities navigate the complex and oftentimes confusing regulations from CMS. To report on the role of physician advisors, here now is our special guest, Dr. Elizabeth Quinn. Good morning, Dr. Quinn, and welcome to the broadcast. Thanks, Chuck. Recently, I was asked to recall some of my experiences as a physician advisor. This prompted me to take a bit of a historical journey. My experiences in physician advisory began as a hospitalist with an inclination towards utilization management. At my hospital, I worked with the UM team to perform daily what we now call multidisciplinary rounds. I would also review hospital encounters at the nursing station with medical directors from the insurance plans. In those days, discussions primarily focused on how sick the patient was and what was my plan to make them better for a timely discharge. There wasn't anything I wasn't prepared to cover as a treating physician, but I did quickly learn what I needed to emphasize and document in order to ensure appropriate insurance coverage. A few years later, when I was officially a physician advisor, CMS introduced the two-minute rule in October of 2013. Depending on who you spoke to, there appeared to be a different understanding of the rule. But one thing was clear. It was a game changer. Fast forward eight years, despite several debates and clarifying documents, the two-minute rule was still misunderstood within certain circles. As already discussed, this is even a problem with government contractors. Personally, I find the two-minute rule to be cleverly crafted. In an effort to address concerns regarding the overuse of short-stay inpatient as well as multi-day observation hospitalizations, a shift was made, all while trying to keep the best interest of the the beneficiary at hand. Instead of focusing on level of care, which roughly only equated to severity of illness and intensity of services, the burden to qualify for a Part A payment was placed on the provision of hospital services crossing to midnight. 
inherent to the definition, hospital services were services that could not be provided elsewhere outside of the hospital. Well, were they medically necessary? Determining that would be up to the treating physician, and for the most part, the physician's judgment and determination needed to be reasonable according to CMS. Generally, CMS does not take the position to tell doctors how to practice medicine. The Trinity of the Two Midnight Rule consists of physician, judge, physician judgment, hospital services, and two midnights. From these three points, the Two Midnight Rule is built with layers of explanations, exceptions, and expectations added. Physician advisors continue to be the de facto clergy within healthcare institutions monitoring and implementing appropriate use of the Two Midnight Rule. In addition to the Two Midnight Rule, managed care plans created another shift for providers and payers. Here, too, the physician advisor would play an essential role with both regulatory and financial value. A growing force with whom to be reckoned, physician advisors have become the liaison between medical staff and the C-suite. In many institutions, the physician advisor is a physician leader, if not an executive leader, aligned with CDI, care coordination, revenue cycle, compliance, quality, and risk management. The rich history and evolution of the physician advisor is why it was important for our ACPA conference team to choose the NPAC 2022 theme, exploring the spectrum, leadership through collaboration and diversification. Physician advisory continues to rapidly grow and diversify through a variety of collaborative efforts. NPAC 2022 presents a cross-section of categories, including professional leadership, regulatory and financial strategy, CDI, pediatrics, and now evolving roles for the physician advisor. Much like pediatrics became a physician advisor area specialty, we expect the same to happen for other areas such as behavioral health, pharmacy, and more. The future is bright for the physician advisor, and I hope everyone will join us in Austin, Texas, April 11th through 13th, to look through that prism and explore the spectrum together at NPAC 2022. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Quinn. Dr. Quinn is the chair for the 2022 National Physician Advisors Conference presented by the American College of Physician Advisors, and that conference is April 13th in Austin, Texas. David, let's take a look at some of the questions. We've got a couple of minutes. First is the classic, can you uh, give us that the, the citation again? Uh, so Anna wants me to give the site of that rule, uh, which is 4, 42 CFR. 410.20E, as in Edward. It was added as part of the fee schedule. I want to say this is going to, I think in 2019, it was uh, in the 2020 fee schedule, I believe. I'm pretty sure. Don't quote me on that. But you can, if you Google 42 CFR 41020E, you should be good to go. I'm going to put out a request to our audience, which is I am wondering if other folks are noticing issues with contractors completely misapplying the rules. Um, we've had a couple of segments, and I want to thank Linda again for sending me the comment about WPS and the concern that no one other than a physician can write in the medical record. And I think the only other thing, I, I will toss out to the whole crew, does anyone have a good contact at CMS that they would turn to when they've got an issue with a contractor? I know I don't, and so I'm just going to float it out there. Ron, Matthew, see if you've got anyone you turn to when you've got a frustration with contractors disregarding the rule. And Matthew, would you go to the regional well, office or would you go to Baltimore? I think I'd go to Baltimore, but I don't have a, I don't have a contact. You know, I know of, uh, and they're starting to promote it a lot with the No Surprises Act, of a complaint and arbitration thing that you can go through 
uh, that they're offering providers. Uh, I can look it up for next week, but um, again, that's not a good contact that could actually get things done. That's just going through the formal process of arguing something. So I don't have anybody. Ron, go ahead. Um, first of all, if it's a single topic where you can figure out who the CMS subject matter expert is, which is often indicated within the regulations or the rules as they when they publish them on the Federal Register, that'd be the person to go to. But I think in, in general, um, going to the regional office is going to create that paper trail that you really want so that if it becomes a recurrent problem, you can go back and show your work and make you know people aware that you've made this made this um, an issue and that you have notified people and it has become a recurrent pattern. Heidi is saying that CERT auditors have recently denied claims for not having daily radiation oncologist signatures. So that's an interesting, it's a, it's a good comment and I will uh, drop you an email, Heidi, but I'd be very curious as to what their thinking is. It sounds like, and especially CERTs are specifically told to generally not deny things for lack of a signature. So I'm curious about that. That is definitely one worth looking into. David, I want to thank you very much for that response, and stay tuned. We'll have more information later. That's going to be a wrap. And I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. Elizabeth Quinn from the American College of Physician Advisors. And one more thing before we say goodbye, you can listen to all of them on the Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.